0: Uh, Yeah, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 4, finishing up the book of Jonah this week, so I'll read through the text and pray, and then we'll begin. Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. God's Word says this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord! Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? For which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would use this time to cause our souls to be stirred up. That we would say truthfully, that we would truly cry out, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Worship his holy name. For you are worthy, Lord, of our utmost praise. You are worthy of our highest affections, of all of our Time, of all of our energy, of all of our mind, of all of our love, of all of our ambitions, all of our desires, all the ways in which we stray and wander from you, Lord, you are worthy of us submitting those things to you and turning back to the Lord and resting in your embrace. You are the God of salvation. You are the God of mercy that will extend mercy to the utmost. To the uttermost, Lord, there are none who have wandered too far that you cannot gather them, that you cannot call and they will hear from where they are and they will come to you. You will bring them to you. You will carry them to you, Lord. And we pray that we would just see you aright this morning. That everything else that we've dealt with this week that are weighing on our minds, that would distract us in this moment, that you would strip those things away and you would cause us to set our minds above. Where Christ is reigning in unrivaled majesty and power and glory as he will from now to the end of time and beyond. Come now in this time and be lifted up. Let your glory be cherished so that nothing is seen, nothing is valued but Christ and Christ alone. Have your way with us in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm still sort of rocked from that time of worship that we just had, so you'll have to forgive me. and need to gather my thoughts and remember that we have a job to do. Um, if any of you know me, you might know that I'm not uh, typically a person that gets angered very easily, or or typically holds grudges. My wife may disagree, but she's not she's not here to to validate that point. So you have to take my word for it. But if I'm anything like my middle child is currently right now, my my terrible, horrible two-year-old, then um, there was a time when I held grudges because this. My middle child, Della, she's in this stage where, like, it's, it's, it's beyond ridiculous how easily she gets offended. Like, if her older sister is in the room just talking, not even talking to her, talking about her, or bothering her, she goes like this. She says, leave me alone, Amaya, leave me alone. And she's not even, like, Amaya's not even paying any attention to her. Or when this other day, just uh, a couple of days ago, Amaya got in trouble. She had to be disciplined. And Della, it was like, for some reason, it was like a point of vindication for her. She threw her head back and was laughing that Amaya got in trouble. It had nothing to do with her. Like, she's just, she's the type that holds grudges right now and gets easily angered. Fortunately, hopefully she'll grow out of that. Hopefully she uh, won't experience things in her life as her parents will try to shield her as much as possible. Things that will seriously hurt her and, and scar her and cause her to really wrestle with holding grudges and, and anger and feeling uh, wounded by others. But I know that not everyone comes from that type of background. Many of you come from backgrounds or you're dealing with situations now in which you, you just feel wounded. You feel like someone has, has wronged you, has, has struck at your core and offended you and it's difficult to to truly embrace the tenets of the gospel and to exercise forgiveness and mercy and to see others as God would see them because of how you've been wounded in your heart. In the book of Jonah we we come to a point coming to the end of the book now where we see Jonah wrestling with this this very thing. Jonah at the beginning of the book he is a prophet an Israelite prophet and God has called him, he's he's raised Jonah up and and called him to leave the land of Israel, to travel east to the land of Nineveh, a a pagan, uh, in the pagan Assyrian empire, the capital city of that empire, to go preach to them a message of repentance. That if they will not repent, God will destroy them. If they won't turn from their wicked, detestable practices, God will wipe them out. Chapter 1, Jonah is reluctant. He he won't do it. We're not given uh, an exact insight as to why, but instead of going east, he travels west in the opposite direction, running away from God's calling in his life. He travels to Tarshish. God meets him when he's on the boat traveling with foreign sailors, and he causes a great wind to come and, and stir up the seas. It becomes a, a real... Uh, a tempest comes and, and, and the seas are, are rocking. It's a dangerous uh, moment. The, the sailors are frightened for their lives. They cry out to their gods to no avail. They realize that Jonah is the center culprit, that this is God coming after Jonah. And after much hesitation, they hurl Jonah overboard at his own request. Miraculously, God causes a, a fish to come along and to swallow Jonah and right before Jonah is killed, miraculously again God intervenes and Jonah is brought up out of the water, up out of the fish and finds himself alive. And finally he's compelled enough to actually go into the city of Nineveh in chapter 3, preach a message of repentance. And surprisingly this wicked, wicked city turns and responds to the gospel call. Word even, it says in chapter 3, verse 6, that the word even reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Even the king of this wicked city humbles himself completely. And chapter 3 ends with this note, verse 10. When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. It's from that point that we enter chapter four, and we see how Jonah responds to the situation. We're going to walk through the text, break it up into three basic sections, and have a point of a, or a time of application at the end after we walk through the text. You can basically break up the text into three main sections. You have uh, Jonah's anger in verses 1 through 4. Finally, um, or secondly, in verse 5, you have the second section, Jonah's fit. And thirdly, lastly, you have God's response in verses 6 through 10. Jonah's anger, 1 through 4. Jonah's fit in verse 5. God's response, verses 6 through 10. Let's start with Jonah's anger, verse 1. It says, "But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry." Literally in the e, in the Hebrew, this is Stated in the strongest way possible. The word evil is is repeated twice. Once in its verbal form form, and then once in its adjectival form. It it, it would literally read that it was evil to Jonah. It was a great evil what God had done. And he was angry. It's the strongest way a Hebrew writer could, could convey the outrage that Jonah feels in this Moment and the, and the question is, why? You would expect that if God has called a, a prophet to go preach a message of repentance, that they would, if they heeded the gospel call or, or the call to repentance, that there would be a time of, of rejoicing, of an ingathering, gathering of new brethren, of new kindred minds who would come alongside and worship the Lord God together. And yet that is not the case with Jonah. He gives his reason why in verse 2. Jonah turns to the Lord and verse two says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster this is meant to serve as sort of a plot twist in the story when when Jonah says is this not what i said when i was in my country we don't read of any point earlier in the story where where Jonah says this where he gives his explicit reason as to why he's fleeing from the call of god upon his life we're made to assume initially that it's because Nineveh is described as this great city, and he's only a single man that's meant to that's being called to leave his country and and go preach to this great city, a message of repentance. We're meant to assume that maybe he's afraid, that he's afraid of of going on this journey alone, of what may happen to him, that it's fear that's compelling him to flee from the presence of the Lord. And yet it's not. It's not a fear of man. It's a fear of God and not the displeasure of God. It's a fear of the kindness of God. He says, when I was yet in my own country, he's making a a statement of nationalistic pride. It's as if Jonah knows that it is us, the Israelites, and it's those who are non-Israelites. Those who have oppressed my people, those who have afflicted my people, those who have wronged us, who have wronged me. They may not receive mercy. You cannot extend grace to them. It's a sense of of nationalistic pride that Jonah has here that makes him unwilling to see God's compassion extended towards those who Jonah feels does not deserve his mercy. In fact, he quotes when he says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's quoting from Exodus 34, verse 6. We're back in Exodus 34. God reveals himself to Moses on the mountain of Sinai. Moses pleads with God to allow him to to see a glimpse of his glory. And God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock to shield him from, from being completely consumed by his glory. And he allows Uh, Moses to see the backside of of God as he passes by Moses hidden in the cleft of the rock. And as he does so, he proclaims this declaration about himself. He gives his own self-disclosure, his own identity. This is the core of who God is. He is a God who is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And yet the little last piece that Jonah adds there, and relenting from disaster, that's not something that God says to Moses back in Exodus 34, verse 6. Jonah is adding that in just because it's something that he also knows about God that's relevant to the situation at hand. When God passes in front of Moses, he doesn't say, I'm also one who relents from disaster, but ironically, Jonah is also looking back at Israelite history. And there have been times when God has specifically said that because of the sin of his own people, that he would come and punish them. And yet when they repent, when a prophet such as Moses intercedes for his people, like when, when they gather, when Moses goes up on Sinai and, and they gather and make a, a golden calf, Moses' brother Aaron actually leads this form of idolatry. Moses intercedes, and God relents from this disaster. I say it's ironic because Jonah, reaching from another part of of the Exodus account to describe how God relents from disaster, it's as if he's looking specifically back at a time when when God showed his own people mercy for having committed sins against him, having turned their back against him, and yet When the shoe is on the other foot, it's impossible for him to see how God might extend the same mercy to the Ninevites. This whole story is is shrouded in irony, just highlighting the, the blindness of Jonah, his own pride, his own unforgiving heart, and allowing us to see ourselves in Jonah's place. Now just before we move on let's let's make sure that we're clear that it, it's not just that it's not just a, a me and them complex that Jonah has like I want God all for me God is mine God is the Israelites and no one else can have him he actually has from a human perspective Jonah has a great argument a compelling argument these people these Assyrian people are notoriously historically known as being some of the cruelest people, cruelest empires that have ever been on the face of this earth. The Assyrians are known for impaling their prisoners, flaying them alive, cutting off body parts, committing all types of cruelty against women and children, marching them off into the nude, selling them into slavery. These are things that the Assyrians have committed against Jonah's own people. If we're a modern day example just look at what's happening in the Middle East right now with ISIS and imagine that you're uh, one of the Turkish people who have seen thousands of their own people killed murdered including over hundreds of children over 2000 women kidnapped 2000 women and children kidnapped religious and ethnic groups systematically hunted and and gathered together and shot down, girls enslaved in sexual abuse, children, recu- children recruited for suicide bombings, men and boys herded together, thrown into trenches, and shot dead. And imagine God comes to you and says, I'm going to forgive these people. Despite everything they've done, I'm going to forgive these people. It's too much for Jonah Verse three says, "Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live." He says, "Therefore, now." It's it's always that that phrase always marks the central point of a prayer or a speech where decisive action is taking place after everything has been carefully evaluated and weighed. is saying, based on what you have done, O Lord, I have decided that it is not worth living in a world where you extend, extend grace to people in this way. A world in which you are this compassionate to others is not a world in which I want to live. Jonah is angry at God. This isn't specifically directed towards the Ninevites. He's angry at God. Have you been there? Felt as if looking at the situation in your life or the things that have happened to you. How can God allow this to happen? You should not allow this to happen. I want us to really resonate where, with where Jonah is in this moment. I was reading a story. Um, well, let me give you some setting the the country of Ukraine, set in the far eastern Europe, borders Russia to its east and Poland to its to its west. Um, it's a country that those two countries, those two neighboring countries, ever since the 12th century have have rivaled over back and forth. It's, its boundaries, Ukraine's boundaries, have been constantly redistributed as these two uh, mighty forces have, have vied and jockeyed for power over Ukraine. And different leaders, different foreign leaders, have ruled over the Ukraine. And all the while, the Ukrainians are known as being a people of tremendous uh, national pride, never having lost their identity, never have a lo- lost a sense of who they were. And in the 1920s, a a Russian leader, uh, one who became the leader of the USSR, rose to power, whose name was Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin, if you don't know much about him, he's become known now as one of the most ruthless dictators who have ever lived. In fact, more people have died under the, the rule of Stalin than perhaps anyone Stalin rises to power in Russia. He seizes control of the Ukraine, and he's determined to break their sense of national pride, to to break the will of anyone who might resist his uh, rule. And what he decides to do is uh, he uses the state to seize control of all the peasant farms in the Ukraine, which makes up about 90% of the population. Almost all of the population in Ukraine make their entire subsistence, their entire living off of their own land, farming. Stalin seizes control, forces them to hand over grains to the state, a certain quota of grains that's astronomical. It's, It's so high that they're not even able to keep enough seed to plant for the following year. They're completely depleted and wiped out. And additionally, Stalin closes down the border so that no imports can come into the country. He's isolated and trapped these people who might resist him. The result is that several millions die of famine and starvation. There's a letter of one girl who lived in Ukraine, a Ukrainian young girl, who's writing a letter to her uncle pleading for him, who lives outside of of her country, to do something to get her out of there. All she sees around her is death, death. People starving. People dying. She writes to him and says. In war. People typically die quickly. Here I saw people dying alone by slow degrees. Dying hideously. Without even the excuse of sacrifice for cause. They had been trapped and left to starve. Each in his own home by a political decision made in some far-off capital around conference and banqueting tables. There wasn't even the consolation of inevitability to relieve the horror. The worst sights were the little children with skeleton limbs dangling from balloon-like abdomens. Starvation had wiped every trace of youth from their faces, turning them into tortured gargoyles. Only in their eyes still lingered the reminder of childhood. Everywhere we found men and women lying prone, their faces, bellies bloated, their eyes utterly expressionless. In the Ukraine, over 7 million people died because of what Stalin did. Now imagine God comes to this little girl and says, Because I am a compassionate and gracious God, if Joseph, Stalin, and the Soviets repent, ask for forgiveness, I will completely forgive them and love them and embrace them and welcome them into my family. That's what Jonah was dealing with in this moment. Jonah feels completely justified that what God is doing is wrong. And yet the story, uh, the story is meant to convey that it's very easy for us to identify with where Jonah is, being limited, finite, frail people. And yet our God is one whose compassion is higher than ours. His ways, his ways of salvation, his perspective on eternity is farther than and higher than what any of us can conceive. When God comes to Jonah, in verse 4, he responds very simply, but powerfully, when you see what he does. He comes to him in verse 4 and says, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Now, it's interesting, the, w- the way that the author has set this up, when he says, do you do well, or the verb is, do you do good, it's interesting because in verse 1, when it said that it displeased Jonah, literally, it was, it's the verb for it was evil, it was bad in Jonah's eyes, what God did. So God is now using the opposite verb to, to ask Jonah if what he's doing is the definition of good. In verse 1, it says it was evil to Jonah. So God comes to him and says, well, are you doing good? Is your reaction good? Not only that, but there, there is a whole sub-subtle narrative that's taking place beginning in this moment. Because there's two words that, that God uses here. The Hebrew word for to do good, or to do well, and the Hebrew word for to be angry. And it's interesting that a, a close reader, of uh, an Israelite Jewish reader who knew their Bible inside and out, um, the only reason that, that we're able to pick it up on it is because we have electronic devices and, and we can just see things that are happening. But a Jewish reader would have picked up on the fact that those two verbs are only used together in one other place in the entirety of the Old Testament text. It's in the story of Cain and Abel. If you remember the story of Cain and Abel, very brief story, but the two first brothers that we see in the picture in the story of Scripture, Abel is described as one who exercised faith. They both, Abel and Cain, they bring their offerings to the Lord, and God is pleased. He looks with favor upon Abel's offering, and he's displeased with Cain's offering. We're not show. We're not told exactly why, but it would seem that. Something is is going on. Where Abel is giving the best of what he has, or he's he's rightly presenting his offering in, in an act of faith to the Lord, and Cain does not. And yet Cain is angry at God's justice and fairness at being pleased with Abel and not him. So God comes to Cain in verse in chapter four, Genesis chapter four, verses six through seven, and He says to him, "Why are you angry?" And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Do you see the the, the common thread here in the story? God exercised fairness and justice, but because Cain's heart was evil, he was angry at God. Same can be said of Jonah. It's such a simple response, but God is here saying, it's as if God is saying, there are two paths to take here, Jonah. And right now, you are taking the path of Cain. If you know the story of Cain, you know what happens to him next. Jonah has no response. There's no answer here. In fact, Jonah seems to have a, a bit of a fit as we move into the second section here of the text. In verse 5, it says Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. There are three words used in this verse that are only used in one other place in Scripture. The verb for to go out, Jonah went out, to sit down. He sat east of this he sat, and then the reference to being east of a particular city. That he went out, that he sat east of the city. The combination of those three words are only used in one other place in Scripture. Where do you think that is? In Genesis four. When God punishes Cain, it says that Cain went out and sat down or dwelled, the same verb there, east of the city, or east of Eden. Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. Then Cain, I'm sorry, Cain, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. He went out, the same verb in Hebrew, away from the presence of the Lord and settled or sat down in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The narrator here is continuing this allusion back to the path of Cain and, and letting you know that Jonah's action here, he has aligned himself, he has identified himself. He has chosen the path of Cain. There are two paths available to us. The one of faith and dependence on on God that is uh, first exemplified in Abel. And there is the path of Cain, of evil, of unforgiveness, of selfishness. One of those two paths we're on. When it comes with extending forgiveness to others. And the author is showing that Jonah has identified himself with the path of Cain, of the first murderer. He goes out of the city. He sits east of the city. He makes a booth for himself there, and it says he sat under it in the shade till he should see what become became of the city. This also rings a chord of of Abraham uh, back in the story of, of Sodom and Gomorrah when. Abraham, who's actually looking out for uh, the preservation of life of those in the city of Sodom who might exercise righteousness and faith. Abraham goes outside of the city and looks upon the city to see if God will actually cause his wrath, his His justice, his fury to pour out onto the city. Jonah, in a, in a similar way, is going outside of the city and looking back on the city of Nineveh to see if God will actually... Be faithful in his eyes and carry out his wrath upon them. He could have been there for a number of days. Back in chapter 3, when he was, in verse 4, when he was marching through the city and calling for the city of Nineveh to repent, it says he he said that in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. And the trek through Nineveh was about three days, the text says. So, Jonah could have been sitting outside the city for 37 some 30-something days. He could have been out there just sulking and waiting and being bitter and just un- unwilling to allow God to soften his heart. He just mulled over his bitterness, his anger. Yet despite Jonah's utter hypocrisy, Even seeing how God extended grace and compassion to His own people in the past and being unwilling to allow Him to extend it towards others. God's response is so kind. Especially as we continue to see. Now having having established that the narrator is trying to show you that there is a strong link being created here between the story of Jonah and the story of Cain. What's amazing is how Despite Jonah's stubbornness, God deals so kindly with him. Starting in verse 6, we see God's response. It says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the of the plant first thing to notice is, is that it says that in beginning of verse 6 that God appointed a plant uh, this is the first time or this is the second time in all of the minor prophets not alone uh, let alone this book the second time in all of the minor prophets where the verb for to appoint comes up the first time was in the beginning of chapter 2 when God appointed the whale it says or the fish to come and swallow up Jonah In other words, Jonah was was bent on this uh, trek away from God, leading him away from the presence of the Lord, and God doesn't merely use already existing circumstances to corral Jonah and bring him back into uh, being in alignment with his will and under his uh, guidance and and provision. He appoints a certain scenario to grab Jonah where he is and to turn him. Jonah is, is... Persistent in running and resisting the will of God, so God here again appoints a change of events to corral Jonah to once again bring him back to him and I say I said it said a moment ago that is interesting now having uh, established that there's something going on here between the story of Jonah and the story of Cain it's interesting because if you remember once again the story of Cain when When Cain continues in his rebellion against the Lord, he refuses to do good and actually goes out and murders his brother. The punishment for Cain, God says in chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. He says, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. In other words, from here on out, as much as you toil in the soil and try to get plants and vegetation to grow up out of the soil for your own nourishment, for your own uh, provision, it will not do so for you. The, gro- the ground will not yield to you its strength As much as you may try, as much as you may work and toil and frustrate yourself to to provide a a living, a substance for yourself, it will refuse to do so. Yeah, isn't it ironic that of all the ways that God could have revealed himself to Jonah and and corralled Jonah in this moment, he decides to miraculously cause vegetation, a plant, to grow up out of the ground to protect Jonah. As if the author is saying that Jonah has in every way aligned himself with the path of Cain, and you would assume, fine, he will receive the punishment, the repercussions that Cain received. And yet, even in the midst of Jonah's rebellion, God is exactly opposite. That, In the midst of extending compassion and mercy to the Ninevites and Jonah resisting, God's mercy and compassion are so wide that he powerfully displays his compassion additionally towards Jonah. That's what's happening here. Some authors will point out the fact that in the Middle East, that uh, there's not a lot of, of raw materials in that area where this booth that Jonah constructed, he would have had enough, of, enough uh, timber and wood to construct some type of, of roof over his head. For uh, In the event that the elements did get overwhelming, that the sun did become hot or the winds became blistering, he would have had no protection for himself. That may be beyond the author's point here. It's not stated uh, explicitly in the text. But it is clear that Jonah was still exposed where he sat. And what's interesting also, one more note about verse uh, 6, is that when it says that God appointed this plant to, to shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort, save him from his discomfort is actually a double play on words, because the word to save is also the word for to deliver and The word for discomfort is also the word for evil or uh, wickedness. So it could be translated that he's saving Jonah from his discomfort, just from the heat that he's experiencing in this moment. But it's also likely the case that the author is doubly meaning that God is working in such a way to deliver Jonah from his evilness in the way that he's exercising grace towards him. Verse 7 comes up, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Verse 8, When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. have a bit of a deja vu in this moment. But what's interesting here is that God is, is is using this scenario to, to turn the tides on Jonah and expose how much of a hypocrite he truly is. When God causes the worm to come up and, and strike down the pe- plant and thus remove Jonah's covering from the scorching uh, heat, the sweltering heat of the sun that God causes to rise up from this east wind that literally it says that it, it, it engulfs Jonah, that it's as if he's suffocating, it's, it's such a miserable scenario that Jonah feels as if he's on the edge of death, such that he genuinely pleads for death in this moment. What God is doing is giving Jonah, stripping Jonah of his national pride by by raising the, the level of crisis so high that Jonah is able to see in a moment a glimpse of the fate of the Ninevites. God is using this scenario to to give Jonah a picture of what it's like to be unexposed when the heat comes. And all of these things, the worm, the the heat, the the blistering winds, these are all uh, throughout Scripture are are used as pictures to uh, foreshadow the coming wrath of the Lord. What everyone who ultimately... Does not repent and, and confide in the Lord and turn from their wicked practices what they will experience and so physically God is giving Jonah a, a picture of the spiritual state of these unprotected ninevites, and immediately Jonah is able to sense that this is unbearable, of course I want to die. How could I live in the midst of this? I want protection don't don't allow this this covering to to that you 've That you've brought up, that you brought up, that I haven't worked for, that is shielding me from the heat. Don't allow that to be struck down. He's angry that his protection is gone. And God comes to him again in verse 9 and says, But God said to Jonah, Do you do well? Once again, Are you doing good to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. The Lord says in verse 10, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? His point, that when he says, uh, that you you pity the plant. He doesn't mean like Jonah is there, like oh you poor plant, you didn't deserve this to happen to you. Like he's holding a limp stalk in his hand and like caressing it now that's dead and withered. It's not saying he's pitying it in that sense. It's used in, in other scenarios like when, when Joseph leads his Israelite people and back in Genesis uh, out of Israel into the land of Egypt. And, and he tells them that the best of the land of Egypt is going to be theirs. That anything they need, they'll have the best of the best once they come to Egypt. And says, therefore, don't pity your possessions that you're leaving behind. It's the same word there. He's saying, like, don't be so obsessed with the way that your possessions provided you some level of comfort or... Um, Yeah, some level of comfort, because once you come to Egypt, what you'll have will far surpass that. In the same way, God is pointing out that Jonah's angry that this thing provided me shelter, provided me comfort. And in that sense, he pities it. In God's point, when he says, you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. He's saying that this, this protection that I've placed over you had nothing to do with you. You didn't earn it. It wasn't yours by right, and yet you can understand how someone who doesn't naturally deserve protection can be so appreciative of the protection that I provide for them that you don't deserve, that you did nothing to earn. In that sense, he's giving them, he's giving Jonah a picture of the Ninevites. You're upset, Jonah, that you're overheated and this plant is destroyed. And yet that is nothing compared to what the Ninevites will experience if they don't turn from their sins. Should I not be compassionate towards them as well? For these some 120,000 persons who he says, closes out with saying, who do not know their right hand from their left. And I think the reason that he, he describes it in that way is because so often in, in Scripture, uh, when God tells his Israelites to obey his word, to obey his commands, he says, these word, he says something to the effect of, these words that I'm commanding you, giving you today, do not turn aside from them to the right or to the left. That's the way in which he's always saying, like, keep these commands that I give to you. Don't turn aside to the right or to the left. Imagine if an Israelite didn't know, had no uh, concept of what right and left was? How would he be able to make sure that he stayed on the straight and narrow path, that he didn't wander off, if he had no sense of right and left? And I believe that that's what God is playing upon, that he's using that to describe these Ninevites. They are so blind that, yes, what they have done is horrendous. The atrocities that they have committed, the errors that they have made are wrong. And yet, without the revelation, the illumination of God, they are blind. They don't know their right hand from the left, implying how would they know to truly keep the instruction of the Lord unless I acted on their behalf. Let me give a few points of application before we close. Number one, we can see here that God keeps coming after His people. He keeps coming after His people. If you thought that when you came to verse eleven that that's like a terrible way to end a story, like what type of conflict resolution is that? You'd be absolutely right. This isn't a fairy tale story where. Jonah ends up going into Nineveh, and they link arms, and they're singing Kumbaya, and skipping off into the sunset, having gained a new brother. Like, Jonah is exactly where he started. It's as if he's made no progress over the course of the story. He ran from the presence of the Lord. The Lord turned him back. He went to Nineveh. He was angry at the Lord. He went uh, away from the city to sit and sulk and be bitter about it. The Lord tries to turn him back, but there's no indication that Jonah has Turned and and really made some type of revelation and and understood how he ought to act and act accordingly. And yet this is the story of all of God's people. We are not those that, that hear what we are to do and immediately and perfectly put things into practice. We are those who continue to struggle with forgiveness and bitterness and lack of empathy and lack of compassion who refuse to be obedient, who wander. Yet if this story says anything, it's, it says that our God is faithful even when we are faithless and will continue to come. Point number two, we do see here an example that we are to pray openly but be submissive to God. Pray openly but submissively to God. That In verse 2, we see from Jonah that although he is angry at the Lord, he does come to the Lord. He does come and vent his frustration to the Lord. He's still communicating with the Lord, which is, if nothing else, at least a sign that he's looking towards the Lord. One Puritan, Hugh Martin, said, Let us not forget, therefore, that he has, Jonah has, with much simplicity and frankness, owned all his sin in this matter. He has acknowledged his transgression and his iniquity he has not hid. All his heart he has laid bare and open before the Lord. But here was his error. But he did err in not pouring his regrets and griefs in this matter into the bosom of God submissively. He did err greatly in not accepting the divine arrangement and... As righteous and wise and holy and good and best, he did err in not bringing all his own wisdom into subjection to the appointment of God. Jonah is an example of how to to bring all of our frustrations, even even when you're angry at the Lord, when you when you feel like. You feel like even when when you've done wrong and you feel like the Lord is so angry with you that you can't go to Him, this is, is a perfect story and an example of how, regardless of how you may feel, the first step is always going to the Lord and knowing that He will hear you wherever your heart is. He wants your heart, though. He wants you to come to Him. Finally, we are called to Thirdly, be compassionate as God is compassionate. It is so easy to understand Jonah's perspective when you really look at his world that he lived in and who these people were and how they had committed such terrible crimes against him. Yet the point of the story is that choosing the way of Jonah, choosing to to Cling to that sense of, of justice for yourself, of, of being so um, hesitant to, and reluctant to see the compassion of God poured out on others abundantly and freely in a way that completely baffles your mind is to choose the way of Cain, the murderer, the rebel. Our God is a compassionate God. And when we say that, we can't overstate it enough. Through Isaiah, God tells us that his ways, his thoughts, are higher than our thoughts. That God's vantage point of eternity, of not only the justice that will inevitably fall for all those who have rebelled and continued in their rebellion against him, but also the incomparable bliss that will adorn those who have placed their trust in Christ and continued on in a life of, of repentance, of faith, of falling and yet returning to the Lord. From his vantage point, none of us can truly conceive and grapple and understand and fully embrace the justice and righteousness and holiness of the God of the universe. But he is just that. And we are called to, to strain, to use the word through his spirit to purify our hearts, to cause us to, to rise and, and and continue to press on into the bosom of God and be like our great Father in heaven. So let us take those things this week pray that his spirit would apply them to our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if we are to identify with anyone in this story, most surely most of us would identify with Jonah. If we truly examined our hearts, we would be those who quickly see the faults in others, quickly see the errors in others, quickly see the transgressions that others have committed against us and hold them to a different standard than ourselves. Lord, we are so quick to forget the mercy that you bestow upon us daily, moment by moment. How even now, sustaining us and, and speaking to us and beckoning us to yourself and cheering our hearts, despite what we have harbored in our wicked hearts, even this week. But how is it all a testament to your grace? And Lord, I just pray that you would use this word, use the songs that we sing, use this time of communion that we are about to partake in, to purify our hearts, to sweep away the the cobwebs over our eyes and over our minds that inhibit us from seeing your splendor, your majesty, the full panorama of your glory. Cause us to worship you aright do these things in Jesus' name. Amen.